You're listening to From the Burgundy Chairs, a podcast for health system leaders created by Santa's Health. Hi, everyone. My name is Caroline Pitfield, and I'm an associate here at Santa's. Our discussion today will focus on the importance of culturally relevant models of addictions treatment for the health and well-being of First Nations people. In particular, we're going to unpack some of the challenges that communities and people face in accessing these critical services due to years of underfunding by both levels of government and complex questions of who is responsible for what. Before we get started, I would like to acknowledge the land on which I am today, here in Ottawa, is the traditional unceded territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin people. The Algonquin peoples have lived in this land since time immemorial. Their presence has nurtured it and continues to do so. We're very grateful for the opportunity to be here. As mentioned in the introduction, today we are discussing the importance of culturally relevant addictions treatment for First Nations people. Rates of substance use disorders amongst First Nations are very high, due largely to years of historical trauma and complicated socioeconomic realities. The repercussions of this are tragic, and while there are some excellent treatment options, they are woefully underfunded. I am extremely honored to be here today with Dr. Carol Hopkins, Chief Executive Officer of Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, and Rolanda Manitowabi, Executive Director of Nguagan Gamag Recovery Center. They both have tremendous wisdom to share on this issue and insight on what needs to be done to ensure that appropriate care is available. With that, I'm going to turn it over to them to introduce themselves in more detail. Dr. Hopkins, why don't we start with you? Greetings, I'm uh, Carol Hopkins, and I come from the Delora Nation in southwestern Ontario. My father's family line comes from the Muncie Delaware First Nation, just outside of London, along the Thames River. And my mother's family line comes from the Delaware Nation at Moravian Town, which is where I live and is also the host community for the head office of Thunderbird Partnership Foundation. Thank you. And Rolanda, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you. Bonjour, Vidavana Okwen, Dejnakaz, Maingandodem, Wikwem Kong Donjaba. My name is Rolanda Manitowabi, and I work for Gwagangamik Recovery Center in the Wikwem Kong Unceded Territory on Manitoulin Island. Thank you, Rolanda. And now I think to lead off, I'd like to ask um, maybe you, Dr. Hopkins, to lay out for us a little bit some of the challenges with respect to substance use in First Nations and some of the impacts you're seeing in terms of well-being. Thank you, Caroline. Alcohol use remains constant, like through the pandemic, pre and post-pandemic, it's 80, around 86% uh, of the people who present for treatment um, have been using alcohol. And stimulant use has increased for during the pandemic. And sedatives, though, is most concerning because we saw a 40% increase amongst First Nations. Cannabis is also remains high, but the root causes of that is trauma and unresolved trauma. And that's why people are turning to substances uh, to manage um, and cope with life. Substances are used as a way of coping with the unresolved trauma or the complicated and compounding grief and loss. Um, such as suicides of family members or friends is uh, a significant um, reason that we are seeing in our survey data as as the experience of First Nations involved with substance use. The other factors um, that are critically important to think about is 
uh, are the social determinants of health. So food security and housing for people who reported that they fairly often do not have resources to buy food for their household are at risk, uh, three times more risk of using methamphetamine. You know, methamphetamine curbs the appetite. And, and so people don't actually experience hunger. Using methamphetamine to curb their appetite because they don't have enough food um, is something that we have to question. Question in terms of in Canada, uh, we know that there's food security issues. There are issues uh, with people trying to cope with life and deal with the unresolved trauma and substance uh, use becomes a mechanism to survive. So that sounds like an incredibly complicated situation. And I, I imagine that during COVID, things were even more difficult. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about, about that? Yes, for sure, Caroline. During uh, the first year of the pandemic, First Nations people experienced a 132% increase in the number of opioid poisoning-related deaths. Uh, and that's relative to 68% for non-First Nations during the same time frame. We know that employment and staff retention um, for folks working in the field of mental wellness and substance use was also problematic. And communities reported that they did not have capacity to adequately pay their staff and that recognizing that their salaries in First Nations environments, whether they're addictions treatment centers or First Nations community-based programs, they don't have capacity to pay comparative salaries, comparative to publicly funded services in the province. You know, during the pandemic, the cost of things impacted every everyone. Um, cost of living increased. And for a workforce that is um, underpaid, the cost of living significantly impacted them. And I've heard the workforce talking about using their own resources to buy food for their clients to put gas in in the gas tank to ensure that they get to um, the resources they need. Maybe it's harm reduction services outside of the community, but the workforce shouldn't have to pay for those services. And so that's a little snapshot of what uh, the workforce is dealing with amongst First Nations. And what they're facing are the impacts of intergenerational trauma and that trauma caused by systemic colonialism in Canada that have lasting multi-generational effects. Things like the continued loss of land and disconnection from culture and language resulting from racist policies. These are race-based policies that disconnected First Nations people from, you know, the very essence of our being and our culture, our identity. And that has led to chronic and complicated, complex trauma the forced assimilation and marginalization, they all have direct impact on mental health that goes across generations when you don't have any resources um, to address it. And you have to remember that our culture and our language was outlawed in Canada. And so that practice, practices related to culture and our language had to go underground. And there was a lot of fear about bringing that back to light for you know, the, the fear of our loss of our children and such is not very far away from our memories. It's not too too long ago where that was the practice. We're, we're in a time now where we're talking about a culture 
and how it plays a significant role in facilitating wellness. Carol, could you give us a sense of what kind of uh, treatment facilities are available to First Nations people in, in this country? Yeah, there are, are two national programs, uh, one that serves adults and another that serves youth. And uh, so there's the National Native Alcohol and Drug Abuse Program, and that's adult treatment program. So it's treatment centers, but there are prevention workers in, in the community. And then there's the National Youth Substance Abuse Program. It started off as a National Youth Solvent Abuse Program. It's now a substance use program. And it serves youth. And it's only a treatment center. So altogether, there's um, approximately 54 treatment centers that are federally funded across the country serving adults and youth. And, and those programs are operating in First Nations communities primarily. There are some that are urban-based. Um, but they play a role in supporting the wellness of First Nations. It's one of the first wellness programs ever funded in First Nations communities. And can you tell me a little bit about how these programs work with, with other treatment programs or other healthcare services provided at the provincial level? So the National Native Alcohol and Drug Abuse Program and the National Youth Solvent Abuse Program or Substance Use Program they're federally funded programs and they exist unto themselves. They're incorporated entities. They don't have any funding, say, for example, for psychologists to do assessments, but they also don't have funding for physicians. They, they are not funded for nurse practitioners. And so when we're talking about methamphetamines, uh, benzodiazepines, opioids, um, and managing withdrawals of those substances, a physician is required um, to make that assessment and to facilitate prescribing. The addictions treatment programs are not the first line of intervention when it comes to methamphetamines and, and opioids. They are a resource that is critically important along that recovery journey. But when people are withdrawing from opioids and methamphetamine, one of the critical factors is accessing a physician or a nurse practitioner who can assess them and understand where they are in terms of their level of use, frequency of use, and prescribe appropriately uh, medications to support the withdrawal in, in a humane and compassionate way. However, if you're living in a remote and isolated community or even rural First Nations communities, transportation to urban environments where those services exist is problematic. For example, in Ontario, um, there were addictions clinics that were set up on the doorstep of First Nations communities. And that medication and that care was not coordinated with the community. And so the impacts of methadone in the community were devastating because the community didn't understand um, the risks that go along with methadone. And so the best solution is when we have a clear partnership with local health authorities or First Nations are funded by both federal government and provincial government um, to supply or to ensure that there are public health resources as well as physician or nurse practitioner resources in communities. The federal government does not fund physicians and nurse practitioners in First Nations communities. 
The Constitution says that's the responsibility of provinces and territories. But with a, a history of having no relationship with the province, the perception is largely that it's the federal government who is responsible for resourcing First Nations communities um, with the capacity to provide community-based addiction services. Provinces and territories have responsibility for universal access to health care, for access to harm reduction services, that's public health, for access to physicians or nurse practitioners that can manage long-term the substance use challenges that people who use drugs are facing. Can you speak a little bit to the importance of cultural relevance in delivering treatment? If the service is not culturally relevant, if there's no understanding about colonization, then the services are more likely not culturally safe. And so there can be further marginalization and stigma of First Nations people trying to access harm reduction supplies, for example. Um, There are examples where, or there are real instances where public health has has refused to serve First Nations people, um, citing that they're a federal responsibility and they should go back to the reserve to get the supplies. That's inhumane and that's racism. You know, maybe there's there's a lack of funding um, around public health measures, but to cite their identity and uh, that they should go back to the reserve as as a reason for not serving them is inadequate. It's 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 wrong. It's racism. It's it's just not right. It doesn't follow what Canada's Health Act says around universal access. What is also important for First Nations is that. The, the services be culturally safe. And so that means relying on our strength as Indigenous people, as First Nations people, um, despite the impact of the Indian Act and colonization on First Nations, we still have our culture intact. And First Nations across the country have said that culture has to be the foundation um, to address substance use and related harms because it's a strength-based approach. It calls upon the strength of First Nations to facilitate meaningful outcomes and meaningful outcomes that are defined by First Nations and not just expecting that there's a one-size-fits-all and that we don't need to pay attention to your identity. And, And it might sound like an oxymoron to say your identity is a reason for excluding or or. Um, excluding you or barring you from accessing services. And I'm saying that identity matters. Um, Our culture matters. And so it's um, making sure that people have access to culture. And in fact, we developed an assessment tool that would measure the impact of culture in facilitating wellness. And we've seen through the National Native Alcohol and Drug Abuse Program and the youth programs that in fact, throughout the pandemic, even through virtual services, they were still facilitating access to culture. Um, and, and the result of that was a 10% increase in wellness as measured by um, the outcomes of hope, belonging, meaning, and purpose. That's substantial. And that when treatment centers and community-based addictions programs are using land-based services in addition to or alongside 
opioid agonist treatment, there is a 17% increase in emotional and physical wellness. And that's just in a short amount of time, um, six to eight weeks between the measures. Um, And we know that First Nations uh, have a higher rate of retention in addictions treatment when services are delivered within the community in a way that reflects their culture, builds on their strengths. And when these services um, work to facilitate belonging, and that goes a long ways towards eroding shame and stigma that clouds the struggle for wellness. It's not an easy journey for people who use drugs, and it's not easy for their families and the community as well. But we know culture works, and we have data that shows that. So we have solutions and now we just need the funding and the capacity, the universal access to apply the legislation in Canada to ensure our workforce uh, matter, that people who are seeking um, help for substance use issues related to the determinants of health and the, and the years of colonization have the right to health. They have a right to uh, social services to s- sustain their life. So, Rolanda, you are on the front line at at a treatment facility. Could you tell us a little bit about what you've seen? Well, still being mindful of the COVID impacts in our community, as of March 2022, so not long ago, we opened up at a half capacity, a 20-bed treatment facility, our healing lodge in in Wakwamakong. Prior to that, Wagungamik Recovery Center operated for 46 years with an eight-bed facility and a small community-based program with a population of 3,600 plus serving First Nations people who are applying for treatment from all over Ontario. We had, uh, on average, 250 plus applications a year for residential treatment but we've never been able to service more than 40% of those who are reaching out for help. Nor have we been able to grow our community-based services to include work with individuals and their families in any uh, depth uh, to ground, stabilize, motivate, and support community members along the continuum of care. There was just not enough resources uh, to provide more than the brief intervention, support counseling and education that we were uh, we were providing. Uh, just to give you an example, we had an uh, individual coming into treatment uh, 16 days before the intake day. We had to send him to uh, a family member outside of the community for the weekend over to detox. Uh, they would only keep them for a maximum of three days. So we had to go pick them up, bring them back for the weekend, go to uh, a 10-day safe bed program uh, further away from the community, and then bring him into treatment. The sad thing about that is he lived across the road from the treatment center. So, uh, you know, had we had the services for transition home pre and post treatment, we can provide services for uh, community members and others, you know, to prepare them adequately for treatment so that they can withdraw from substances so that they get 
the support and help that they need to get ready for treatment and then to successfully engage in treatment services fully and continue to live with us at the at the transition home for uh, for aftercare and support services following and hopefully you know they can become stable enough in their uh, recovery and with ongoing support and services from community agencies they'd be able to you know maybe apply for housing go to school take care of their family get their kids back uh, etc so we don't have those particular uh, resources at this time to provide the care that people need at the the time and the extent that's needed let alone you know working with their families. Orlando can you tell us a little bit about your experiences through COVID? When the pandemic was declared, uh, our community, you know, gathered together to uh, respond, to help the community. And uh, while we closed the treatment program for in-person services, we quickly developed a virtual four-week program and we had minimal in-person services for the community. So we did things like, uh, you know, still providing detox, transportation and and pickup and whatnot. But there was minimal uh, in-person Uh, services for the community. We reached out to the people that uh, had applications with us. And at the time of March 2020, you know, there were about 150 people who had applications with us. And we continued to accept applications through the pandemic and provide virtual programming. The reality is some people didn't make it. You know, the rates of overdoses and and deaths seemed to increase. There was loss of being able to gather to help one another. We had to watch through Zoom loved ones pass away, you know, and uh, the lockdowns in the community, COVID, you know, prevented us from traveling. So there's a lot of grief and pain and isolation that, you know, have been compounded over the last three years. And uh, now challenges are that, you know, our doors are now open. That's a great thing. We have a larger facility. That's a fantastic thing. Uh, However, with the salaries that we have in hiring, it continues to be a challenge. We make employment offers and the salaries just don't meet what people are expecting. And the, um, the expectation of service uh, is increased and it's very high in our communities so you know it's we need the resources the people uh, to and we need to support our NADAP workforce uh, you know so that they can provide for their family and be fully present and able to continue the good work that they're doing and helping our community members who are challenged with addictions. That sounds extremely difficult I, I... I can't imagine. So Dr. Hopkins, uh, you've been thinking a lot about solutions to these problems. What are what needs to happen? What are the priorities from your perspective? So we put forward a document that outlines five recommendations. And those five recommendations give good guidance to the federal government, um, but also to the provincial and territorial governments as well. And one that is significant is to implement guidelines for fair and equitable salaries for the workforce working in substance use and addictions um, through the National Native Alcohol and Drug Abuse Program and the National Youth uh, Substance Abuse Program. And that those salaries and, um, and the compensation should be commensurate with those paid to mainstream uh, provincial counterparts. 
And so what we mean by that is the right pay for the job. Our workforce are experts in trauma-based care. They're experts in culture-based and land-based services. Um, So the right pay for the job, they're dealing with the intergenerational trauma, the impact of opioids, methamphetamines, and other um, substances, as well as alcohol. And, And their wages should be competitive so that our communities have stability and capacity to respond. And we need the right number of people with the right skills. Our workforce is highly skilled and they're certified in core competencies for addictions treatment. And so having the capacity to address complex mental health and addictions challenges requires validation of the expertise of our workforce. And they are experts in addressing complex trauma and uh, those culture-based interventions, and they deserve adequate compensation, a relevant compensation for the work that they do. And we also need the right uh, place and the right tools. These have to be community-based services that are culturally informed, culturally safe, trauma-based services for First Nations communities. And that means recognizing the expertise of Indigenous people, First Nations people. That's just one. Another one is that the federal government transfers funding uh, to provinces and territories related to health. And there has been emphasis on mental health transfers. And we need to make sure that the federal government is accountable for the funding that they transfer And so the funding that gets transferred to provinces and territories, again, it's to facilitate universal access. It's for every person in the province. That means First Nations communities. There has to be equity. We can measure the investment through those transfers in First Nations populations. We can measure anti-racism. And so publicly funded services again, must be universally accessible to First Nations. And that doesn't mean maintaining the status quo. Well, you can come to town or come to the city and receive the services. It's available to everybody. No, people need services where they live. And that means in the community. And we need to make sure that services uh, can be accessed and that every door is the right door. And that means ensuring that there's anti-oppressive practices. Anti-oppressive practices means understanding First Nations people are experts. We have our Indigenous knowledge and our culture. We're experts in that. Our experts are our elders and our cultural practitioners. Um, and they, they have to be there leading um, alongside our allies that would facilitate uh, reconciliation. Um, And so Canada has put legislation to the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Um, They've signed on to reconciliation and measuring action towards reconciliation. Reviewing the outdated um, and inadequate uh, funding formula um, that supports Uh, the capacity to address substance use and mental health. That's another mechanism that is in our recommendations is conduct a comprehensive review of the current funding formula uh, to inform the modernization of that formula so that communities have the capacity that they need. 
And really, you know, the workforce is telling us that this is a human rights issue, um, that they are being underpaid, they don't have adequate resources uh, to meet the needs of, of the people, and that people who use drugs have a right to life. Their breath is sacred. And I say that it's, sa- it's sacred because it, our breath is given to us by the creator. And without the necessary resources, we can't fulfill our, our mandate as, as a people to preserve that breath of life. And so that funding formula can't continue based on population size alone. The epidemiology and the determinants of health need to be factored into funding to address substance use and related harms. If we uh, brought the two of you back here in two, three, four years time, what are some of the changes that you'd hope to see in terms of First Nations addictions treatment programs? And Rolanda, maybe I'll turn to you first. First of all, I'd like to see the NADAP program enhanced and larger in every First Nation uh, community that there is, that the treatment centers get the significant increases in funding to uh, ensure a safe cultural environment for all the clients that they serve. I'd like to see addictions viewed as a disease and without judgment and with supportive safe homes uh, where people uh, know that they belong and are valued. I'd like to see safety and support along the continuum of care, uh, growth in infrastructure and capital, more, uh, more services out on the land and supports for that. I'd like to see or I'm hoping to see uh, community development and government governance and leadership and in, in all aspects, including in families and community services, uh, acknowledgements and strengths um, reinforced with celebration in communities and to have kind communities and to have clean water and to have safe, sacred places where people can express themselves you know, where mothers who've lost their children to, uh, to addictions, you know, can, can grieve and can talk about that and can go through ceremonies to help with healing, uh, for that. And for the dads out there to be, you know, coming together, uh, to deal with some of these issues and often they're, uh, not involved in, in support services. So I'd like to see that happening. I'd like to see cultural activities and teachings of, uh, you know, how to incorporate this into your life so that we can see those increases in hope, meaning, purpose, and belonging. I'd like to see us telling positive strengths-based stories. That's what I would like to see and people celebrating their uh, accomplishments in in recovery and in healing and sharing their strengths and being who they are. They need to be who they are. Miigwech. Thank you for that. There's a lot of hope in in your ideas of what the future should ideally hold. Dr. Hopkins, anything to add to that before we close? What I heard Rolanda say are really illustrations of the First Nations Mental Wellness Continuum Framework, which says, as the main theme, culture has to be the foundation. It's the starting place. And we've made strides. We've made progress in that paradigm shift 
that recognizes indigenous knowledge and culture as credible evidence. And there's more opportunity um, to offer services or access services from culture using indigenous knowledge. And now we have to fund a continuum of care and, and make sure that that funding is adequate and equitable. You know, if you called me back in four years, I would be saying, we did it. We, we got a review of the funding formula and there's a strategy to act on those results and there's change that is happening and communities have the capacity now uh, to address the acute needs related to substance use in their communities. We're not building new jails now to house people that have been criminalized for their health condition. Instead, communities are able to respond to the need and they're preventing, you know, they're preventing death and they're more focused on celebrating life. That's, that's what I hope for. Thank you for that. So thank you both very much for sharing your perspectives on this really important issue today. Uh, Your insights and your experiences are truly remarkable. You've made an extremely, I think, compelling case for investment in this space And you've also given us a a hopeful vision for what things can be if the right investment is provided and if governments do their bit to ensure that you guys can continue to offer uh, the sorts of services that are so obviously needed. Uh, Thank you both for being here today. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find this episode and more on our website at SantisHealth.ca and on our Twitter at SantisHealth.